Welcome to the 15 Past 15 podcast. It's a great pleasure today to be able to welcome Dr. John Chappell from the London School of Economics. John, thanks for being here today. Now, I know your expertise is in Chinese history, and I wonder if we could start off by imagining that I were a bureaucrat in Qing, China, and I'd like you to try and explain why would I be, as part of my daily activities, looking back to the past as I try to formulate policy recommendations? Um, because using the past was, was a strategic tool, uh, a rhetorical tool uh, among Qing administrators. They would send uh, memorials to the emperor, which would get sent out to all of the other officials in the emperor to comment on, um, and they would use the past to back up their policy proposals. So, for example, uh, a Qing general in the mid-19th century proposed um, not using European troops to help put down a rebellion because he said, look at the Tang Dynasty. They did this in, in the 8th century and this went horribly wrong. Uh, and so using the past was a way of persuading people of, of your particular policy. Proposal. And I, I presume if there were disagreements between officials, then they would be each drawing on different yes. precedents. Yes, they'd be drawing on different aspects of the Chinese past and different aspects of Chinese political thought as well, but historical examples were a key part of that because they also showed off your knowledge, which by extension strengthened your argument because you're showing that you're intelligent and that you um, understand where you're coming from. Right, and implicit in what you're saying is that uh, right up in, through the mid-19th century, these bureaucrats, generals, policymakers in various different ways are always looking back to a Chinese past. But then I think one of the things you're interested in in your research is that at a certain point that begins to change. Can you try and describe what the nature of that change is? In other words, how the historical reference in the past change? So there are um, beginnings of a change immediately after the Opium War, so 1839 to 1842, um, because the shock of defeat to Europe um, and the recognition that China was no longer the middle kingdom dominating all around it uh, led to kind of a reconsideration of the Chinese past. Um, this only started out in a, in a really minor way. So you see memorials coming in recommending doing things that Peter the Great did. Uh, so, for example, going to pick up European technology because that's what Peter the Great did. Um, but it's only using the European past in reference to improvements from Europe, so it's, it, it's a, a very specific area of policy. Um, but otherwise, things for a long time remain embedded in the Chinese past. And I think you're particularly interested in your work um, in the nature of um, China's relationship to its borderlands, right? And then how uh, the type of historical reference that policymakers are using uh, with regard to borderland policy begins to change. Just before we get to that policy thing, could you say a little bit about what the nature of uh, Imperial China's relationship is traditionally to its borderlands? How does it conceive of its borderlands? What we have to understand is we have this body of historical examples that people will draw on when they talk about their own frontiers, but also that frontiers are, by the time we get to the Qing Empire, China's last empire, massive. They're 60% of China's territory, and they're roughly defined as being areas where the majority Han Chinese population are not the ethnic majority. Um, so this despite the fact that the Qing dynasty was a Manchu yes. dynasty. Right. So there, there are all sorts of pro ethnic problems and uh, going, going on within this, but from a Han Chinese perspective, 
Um, and looking at Chinese scholars today, they have something called borderland studies, and they look at, they include areas of the Qing Empire that the Qing, being non-Han Chinese, would not have considered a frontier. Um, so there, there, there are um, complexities there. But, but basically it's to say that 60% of China's territory is, was considered frontier land. And it's the key question from a, from a Han Chinese perspective here that you have obviously the civilized center and then you have the outside world of the barbarians and that the borderlands are this sort of gray zone in between where it's unclear where civilization is merging with barbarianism. Is, is that a way that we can conceptualize a borderland from a Chinese perspective? Most certainly, because there is, when it comes to political thought about borderlands, one of the questions is, well, what do you do about these, these areas that are on the margins? And one of, one of them is that you leave them alone. They kind of naturally turn to China because China is superior, so that's fine. Um, and this comes going back to the Han Dynasty um, because the, the, a book called The Records of the Grand Historian, which is one of the first big works of history in China, the Han Dynasty is roughly equivalent to the Roman Empire in, in terms of time, um, has a massive critique of borderland policy. Uh, he calls uh, what the Han Emperor, Han Wu Di, does military adventurism, going into the borders and wasting money effectively. And this is something that Chinese thought thinkers on borderlands will come back to, this classic example. So now, let's get back to this question of the use of history then. So you're interested in borderlands. How is it then that the borderlands become a kind of site, as it were, for different uh, pasts to be used in policy debates in late 19th century China? So, as I said, 60% of China's territory was considered borderland, um, and actually that had a, a political impact in Qing China because these lands were ruled differently. They were, you had local ethnic minority headmen or chiefs who, who nominally recognised the Qing, but they, were, they had much more independence. Uh, the 40% of the territory that was China proper was ruled by an administrative system of provinces. In the late 19th century, you have a push to turn the frontier areas, which have been independent, in it, into provinces. Um, and the policy includes allowing Han Chinese migration to these areas, which had been illegal because it causes ethnic tensions if you're stealing people's land and, and outnumbering um, people. So um, there is a decision among some officials that actually you need to send Han migrants. And the reason that you need to do that is because they will open up agricultural land, open the wastelands, as it's, as it's described in Chinese. And this will increase your tax revenue and increase the money you have for border defense. And this is an issue because the Russians are impinging on the Chinese borders in places like Xinjiang, and they threaten Manchuria as well. So what you would call defence, or what they might call defence, I might call imperialism. What's, what's the difference here? What's going on? And where does this set of historical reference come into this story? Effectively, this is, I mean, many people have called this imperialism because it's one ethnic majority uh, uh, moving into the land of, of, of minority groups. Um, that The Chinese would not, call, or the Han Chinese would not call it imperialism. But it, it comes into these policy debates because uh, a, a man named Zhou Zongtang, who is a Qing dynasty general, who is responsible for the reconquest of Xinjiang, which is in China's northwest, he uh, says, actually, we need to make Xinjiang a province. So this is one of these independent areas. We need to make it a province. We need to allow Han Chinese migration. And he has to deal with the historical precedent. The historical precedent is Han Wudi's military adventurism. Uh, that's the Han emperor. And 
And so lots of people say, no, this has been tried, albeit 2,000 years ago, but it has been tried, so we can't do this. And he, in response to this, is able to draw on a different set of Chinese precedents, which is the, the Book of Lord Shang, uh, which is from a similar period, slightly earlier, which argues that actually we can't just follow history blindly because there's lots of history and things were done differently at different points in history, so we need to rule appropriately according to the times. So he makes this argument for frontier reform entirely using Chinese reference and, and in response to Chinese reference. How does it go down? Uh, well, he, uh, Xinjiang is made a province, uh, 1885, so it, he is successful and that many of his reforms are put in place. And Xinjiang, as we know, is still part of the Chinese emperor, empire, um, but deeply troubled one. So in this example, um, General Zhuo is still looking back to a Chinese past. Yes. But you're also saying that at a certain point, Europe begins to take an increasingly prominent place in this discussion of the past and how it affects present um, policy decisions. Yes. Um, so the first thing that we have to understand is what happens. This starts happening in the 1900s. And um, the reason for this is that China undergoes a, some dramatic shocks at the end of the 19th century. Um, in 1895, China loses the Sino-Japanese War. This is a bigger shock than the Opium War because they are losing a battle to what they've considered to be their little brother in historical terms. Um, and this is compounded in 1900 by the Qing court's decision to support the Boxer Uprising. This is an anti-foreign movement, which leads to eight foreign armies, including the Japanese, sacking the Chinese capital. This is the last defeat of Chinese conservatism. After this, the Empress Dowager, who is on the throne, says, we need new policies. What suffocates all under heaven is precedent, i.e. what's come before. Um, and so she asks for new policies, and this includes policies on frontier management. So may I ask, when, she, when she's saying that, does she really mean Chinese precedent? Yes, yes. So she, very, very clearly, because she's sending people out to Europe to, and to America to inspect different forms of government and report back so they can have a constitutional convention and how to run the country. So then suddenly you have this set of circumstances, part, partly geopolitical, in which it becomes possible to look then to European pasts, presumably, in order to talk about borderlands in this case. Yes, and this is, I mean, yes, so you do have this context where it's possible to now look at European pasts, where if you had made examples from the European past in reference to Chinese land in the past, or, you know, Qing Empire land, um, it would not have gone down well with your fellow officials. They'd be like, why are you looking to uh, outsiders? Um, and it is sort of strange, because the policies that are recommended, and I'm talking here specifically about Mongolia in the 1900s, are exactly the same. They are move Han Chinese to these areas to create agricultural land and, and increase taxation. Um, so looking to the European past is unnecessary, but it has a purpose. And the purpose is... In looking at Mongolia, this is a much more controversial policy than it, than, than it is in Xinjiang. It's the same policy, but it's a different area. Uh, Mongolia, the Mongols were part of the Qing ruling coalition alongside the Manchus, and they had a, a special status proposing to move Han Chinese into their areas, knock uh, Mongols out of their lands, is therefore highly controversial. So the purpose of using European examples is to illustrate that times have changed and to uh, draw on a sense of evolution. 
um, to, say, to say that, well, look at what's happened in Europe. Europeans went to America. Europeans went to Australia. They created colonies. This was a big success. So, for example, uh, Yao Shiguang is, is an administrator who is sent to Mongolia and, as well as putting his uh, policy proposals in a palace memorial, he also creates a pamphlet which is then sent around because, it, as I've said, this is a deeply controversial policy. Um, and which particular past is he drawing on then? Or is it just a sort of generic story of European expansion to the New World? Or are there particular countries he's drawing on? Or So he, he, he particularly references uh, Australia and he references America. Um, and these are examples which I don't think it's a coincidence have been drawn on by other thinkers at the same time. And they specifically reference Melbourne and San Francisco. And they talk about the Europeans having expanded to these places and we can do the same thing through agricultural expansion. Um, this is where I think this is a little bit strategic um, because Melbourne and San Francisco, which is the examples that are cited, um, weren't results of agricultural expansion. Their names in Chinese mean old gold mountain and new gold mountain. They're they are a result of a rush for natural resources. But still, he talks about this and imagines it's like the grasslands of Inner Mongolia. Um, so there's a, a kind of a disingenuousness going on here, um, to say the least, because he can't have missed this because it's written in the Chinese characters. And if I'm opposing his memorial as a Chinese bureaucrat, am I saying, no, you've got it all wrong in your understanding of European history, or am I saying, well, let me give you a better precedent from Chinese history? What's my strategy here? I don't think your strategy would be to refer to Chinese history. Um, I haven't come across any objections to his proposals put in uh, memorial form because the situation was uh, quite drastic at this point. Uh, Russia had, had occupied part of Manchuria, which is the neighbouring province to Mongolia, um, and there were very clear fears about the insecurity of, of, of the borders. And so you would, you would have to look at the European past. It would be my argument. I haven't seen anyone do it, but that is what I suspect you would have to do. But what is different here is that placing um, China in global historical time also chase, places the people within China in that time and the different peoples. So if you imagine a world in which there are competing nations and the weaker nations will fall, fall away, there is also within China competing races and you need the stronger race to make the nation strong. Um, and so you are creating an inevitability about the Mongols being colonized effectively by Han Chinese settlers. And, and Yao Shiguang is very clear in using this language. He says the Mongols are like fluids. Um, they only fill the container. They don't give it its shape. So territorially, you need solids, i.e. sedentary agriculturalists, who give it its shape. Um, and so by perceiving China in evolutionary time, what you do is you create an inevitability about this process. So it's not just borrowing from Europe. That's one way of understanding it. It's also um, perceiving the world as a place of struggle, a place of evolutionary struggle, whereby there is an inevitable process, but paradoxically, we, we need to intervene in this process with policies. John Chappell, many thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you.